Good morning and welcome to Regen. We are so glad to have you with us this morning. Um, and we hope and pray that you find yourselves interrupted by the love and grace of Jesus this morning as you worship with us, as we listen to God's word and sing together and are just here together. Um, just a couple of quick things. Um, if this is your first time here, or if you would been coming for a hundred times and would like to know what's going on here at Regen, we'd invite you to fill out one of the hay cards on the back table, and that'll just um, ensure that you get our weekly emails that just kind of let you know what's going on here at Regen, what upcoming events we have, and different um, things and opportunities that you have to either get involved or to serve. And then I'd also just invite you, if you're a social media user, if you want to um, check in on Facebook and use the hashtag Regen Gives, um, that goes to support um, a ministry, um, and right now that's Candice. Cooper, who is um, our office manager, and she's going to be going to Thailand um, in the coming months. And so when you use that hashtag, it just generates a donation to her and to the work that she'll be doing in Thailand, teaching English and just sharing um, the good news about Jesus there as well. So at this point, I'm going to invite Zach Beiler to come up. He's going to share with you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute, which is something he's part of. And then he will also pray for our offering, and we'll keep going from there. I feel like I was like getting in your face a little bit right there. I was like, give me it. Um, yeah, so, uh, I'm, I've been going through the year two C.S. Lewis Institute. You guys don't know what that is. Maybe most of you, but it was like a couple years ago, Kyle texted me one day and was like, Hey, you should do this. And I had no idea what it was. And I was just really hungry for, to know the Lord and to, to, uh, learn. And I'm more of a, that's kind of my thing is I just like to learn and, and study things. So I was like, okay, I signed up and I went to this place called the C.S. Lewis Institute, which is in downtown Youngstown. So, and what the C.S. Lewis Institute, I believe the correct term would be is called a parachurch ministry. So it's not a church. Uh, it's just, um, it's an organization. There's different hubs around the country that come alongside. Actually, they, they attract people like me and, and like you guys. And then we go back to our church and just try and, and equip us with, with different um, skills that the church, that our church, the even Regen, doesn't have, um, isn't the focus and isn't, isn't, doesn't have the time to really just delve into the the topics that um, that something like C.S. Lewis Institute can do. Um, so what it is, it's a, it's a one-year discipleship program and, an, and basically uh, an apologetics course. So if you guys aren't aware of C.S. Lewis, he's one of the, um, just a really uh, lay person uh, who uh, worked in like a secular field and um, he, was a, he was a great Christian apologist. Um, so you study 12 different topics over the course of a year um, things like the first the first month is creating margin. Things like understanding God's uh, grace, um, learning how to pray, uh, a lot of apologetics topics, things like that. So, um, so for me, I was really attracted to that information. But there's so much more than that. I mean, the institute is just filled with vulnerability. There's three different levels for men and women. So there's young professionals that kind of get into a group. So it's ages 18 to 34. There's mid professionals, men and women. Um, ages 35 to 54, and then senior professional men and women, which is 55 and older. And everybody's kind of like, once every Saturday, everybody gets together and we worship together. This just happened this past Saturday. We worship together, we pray together, we get into our groups, um, and we just talk about the, the things that we study on a monthly basis. So it really just, you dive so much deeper um, than you could possibly do just coming um, four Sundays out of the month. Or if you're just, I mean, if you're really good at studying the Bible and doing everything on your own, then that's good for you. But uh, there's, it's, it's great to even do it in a, community, in a community network like that and to have, like, a really solid plan. So it's been really, really fruitful for me, and I'm glad that Kyle asked me to come up here and talk about it because 
it's something each and every one of you should really look at and evaluate whether or not you have the time um, to commit. So, um, you know, you're reading about 300 to 350 pages of stuff a week. Um, you're meeting once every month with the whole group, and then you meet with your, uh, your group uh, at least once a month too. So there's a big time commitment, and it's, it truly is a great discipleship program. Uh, it doesn't use that word lightly at all. And um, it's, it's, it's been really, really uh, formational for me. So I'm going to pray for this offering. Uh, if you guys want some more information, I can totally, like, point that out to you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, guys, you guys should look at it. It's super great. Um, so I'm going to pass this around, and uh, this is, uh, we'll all pray for the offering here. So if you guys want to pray with me. <clears throat> hey, Father, thank you for uh, meeting us here today again, as you always do. You're so faithful. Um, Lord, I just ask that you teach us today and remind us what it is like to be with you rather than, um, in the words of C.S. Lewis, uh, in, in, in paraphrasing here, Lord, remove us from the slums and our desire to, to make mud pies and help us find our way to you in a holiday at the beach, Lord. Um, Show us that difference today. Show us yourself. Um, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. God, we're just living our lives and uh, trying to get through the day, trying to get through the week. there you are always coming after us, always trying to find us. And so we have this week hidden from you because we were scared, because we were shamed. And so God, would you come and find us in the midst of whatever it is we're in? Wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. To be present here with us today, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, kids can go back with Kayla and Jordan, so off they go. Zach wants to say one more thing about C.S. Lewis Institute. Come. It's free. It's also free. It's free. That's <laughs> only somewhat. Uh, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend it. Um, Zach was reading and thinking, you got to be a reader, but uh, it's good. So talk to Zach about that. I would love to see our church kind of get all up in that. Um, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, which is in your first testament. 1 Kings chapter 19, starting a new series today called When in Doubt. And let me just accumulate all my hot beverages and... Uh, uh, next week, by the way, daylight savings time starts, so mark your calendars, live appropriately. We're excited because our son who wakes up at five will now be waking up at six. This is good, right? That is, that's nifty. Uh, I don't know if it made its way up here from the other campus, but we'll definitely post it online. There will be a, uh, reading, there'll be like a study guide, not a study guide, a resource guide, and on the back of it, um, are some recommended books. 
um, that I have helped me as I've thought about the series. We're going to start producing those with some of our series that we do. I'll tell you right now, one of the books on that uh, is a book that I read in high school. It was called A Prayer for Owen Meany. Uh, it's, I think, one of the most profound novels about faith and doubt. But when I told a group of Christian women to read it, they were very offended. So if that's what you're into, read it. If you're into when Christians are offended, you're going to like it. Um, so uh, it's really, just because it doesn't come from a Christian publisher doesn't mean it's not Christian. So, And let's be honest, most Christian movies are actually pretty bad. So 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4 begins this way. It says, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. The only sound Elijah could hear was the sound of his feet slapping the cool desert sands. The stars shone bright overhead, and the rising moon was his only companion. The silence enveloped him in a welcome embrace. Elijah had been running, and he had been running for days, first to Beersheba in Judah and then on into the Sinai wilderness where his forefathers wandered for 40 years. Over the horizon, he could see the top of Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain Moses had climbed to bring them the Torah and the Ten Commandments, his face Aglow with the glory of God, Elijah had been running, and he had been running for days, and yet no matter how fast he ran, no matter how far he went, he couldn't escape what or who he was running from. The words of Queen Jezebel were burned into his mind. May the gods strike me, and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as I, just as you killed them. Elijah couldn't figure out why the decree of Queen Jezebel, the heretic wife of the apostate King Ahab, had struck him so. All he knew is that words, her words pierced him to the core, and so Elijah ran. He ran, and he ran, and he ran. He ran from the most significant spiritual success of his ministry as the prophet of the Lord. The day before Queen Jezebel's message reached him, Elijah had put to death... 450 prophets of Baal after a very public, very embarrassing defeat. Jezebel had brought Baal worship to Israel, and almost all of Israel had abandoned the one true God to worship this false deity, so Elijah threw down his gauntlet and challenged the prophets of Baal. No matter how loud they prayed, they would yell louder when he put them to the death, and no matter how deeply they cut themselves, hoping their blood would draw the attention of Baal. Their blood would flow in earnest when he put them to death. Their false god never responded. Meanwhile, when Elijah offered a simple prayer 
Yahweh proved himself to be the only God worthy of Israel's worship. A pillar of fire came down from heaven, striking the altar on which a fattened bull lay. The prophets of Baal had dumped water on top of the altar to soak the wood, and there was so much water that it was in pools and a trench around the altar, and all of the water evaporated. Everyone had seen with their own eyes the emptiness of Baal worship. Everyone had seen Jezebel's shame. And so may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah had been a faithful prophet, a faithful man of God, when nearly every man, woman, and child in Israel had abandoned the king and had abandoned the true king, Yahweh. So why wasn't God protecting Elijah? Why, if Yahweh was so powerful, was Yahweh leaving Elijah vulnerable and exposed to the plots of wicked Jezebel? This wasn't supposed to be the way it works. This isn't what Elijah had signed up for. And as Elijah ran into the wilderness of Sinai, he knew one thing. He knew he'd hit a wall. And he didn't know what to do. Because no matter how fast he ran, he wasn't going to get around this wall on his own. Have you ever felt like Elijah feels? Have you ever wondered, this isn't how it's supposed to work? What happens when our faith stops working? What happens when our understanding of God is surpassed by our experience? What do we do when we experience suffering so great, discouragement so deep, a wound so grievous that it throws into question everything we've ever known about who God is? If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. You've hit what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, or what Janet Hagberg and Robert Goylich in their book, The Critical Journey, they call it the wall. If you have ever wondered what to do when your faith stops working, when you feel like this isn't what you signed up for, the truth is that you're in good company. The truth is that you are experiencing something common to any number of people in Scripture and throughout history. Elijah hits the wall, went after a massive spiritual high and a remarkable spiritual success, his life is threatened. King David hits the wall when he flees into the wilderness to save his life from the hands of Saul. Job, as Aaron pointed out so well a few weeks ago, hits the wall when his wife and his children and all of his possessions are taken away from him. Peter hits the wall when he denies a group denies to a group of strangers that he knows Jesus. Paul hits the wall when he says, I have a thorn in my flesh. Jesus hits the wall when he cries out in the garden, if it is possible, Father, take this cup from me. From time to time, and in fact, at many, moment, at many points and moments along our spiritual journey, faithful followers of Jesus will experience a crisis that turns the world upside down. A divorce, the loss of a job, the death of a close friend or family member. We come crashing into the wall like Wiley e. Coyote. And when we do, we can't help but question everything. We question God. We question the church. We question ourselves. And we discover that our faith, what we believe, just doesn't work anymore. St. John of the Cross 
who lived and wrote in Spain in the 16th century, called this experience the dark night of the soul. He instructed his new disciples that they would have at various points seasons of darkness and helplessness and weariness and defeat. He said that there would be times when we feel the door of heaven shut. There would be a barrenness and emptiness and dryness as the spiritual disciplines that had served us so well became dry and empty when they stopped working. St. John said that this was a normal and common experience. He says you can't look at the sun. You know there's like three days a year when the sun is out in northeast Ohio. You can't look at the sun without having to look away. You can't get too near a roaring fire like a campfire without having to back away from the heat. And what he said was that we cannot stay too close to God for too long. Our souls, this side of heaven, cannot bear the weight of that glory and the weight of that brightness. And so there is an inevitable movement of the spiritual life of consolation, feeling close to God, and desolation, feeling distant from him. And so we grow near to him in consolation, and we grow near to that warmth, and our souls can't bear it, and we move into a season of desolation and eventually return back that this undulation, this back and forth, this pendulum swing of consolation, desolation, consolation, desolation, seasons of fullness and spiritual life, seasons of dryness and desert, these are normal experiences. St. John said we would hit the wall important to realize actually that some of us never actually make it through the wall. About 85% of evangelicals will never make it through the wall because we lack the spiritual resources. We lack the community culture to handle it. I, I have been wondering since working on this sermon how many people walk away from church simply because they've hit the wall and their community is not equipped to talk them through that. This moment in Elijah's life is how we get in touch with the spiritual resources that help us get through the wall. Because let me assure you, the only way out is the way through. And no matter how often you read your Bible or how deep your prayer life is, no matter how tingly you feel during worship, no matter how faithfully you serve others, there will be seasons of desolation and dryness in your spiritual life. You will hit the wall. And who you thought God was is going to be called into question through an experience of suffering or discouragement. You're going to feel abandoned. You're going to feel deserted. And in those moments, it's important for us to remember that this is normal. And it's important to remember that the only way out is the way through. So back to Elijah. Look again at chapter 19, verse 4. He, Elijah, went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside him was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Y'all, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is take a nap. So he got up. Then the angel of the Lord came again and said to him, get up and eat some more, or, or the journey will be too much for you. Or the journey will be too much for you. Elijah has 
had what is the most significant moment of his life personally and I guess professionally as a prophet of the Lord. And the very next day he's running for his life and his flight takes two stages. He goes to Beersheba and drops off his servant, goes a day into the wilderness and lies under a broom tree to die. And then he begins to make his move to the mountain of the Lord. But I I don't want you to miss a couple of things here in verses four through seven. And the first is that don't miss that Elijah's honesty is welcomed by the Lord. Don't miss that when Elijah gets snarky with the Lord, the Lord doesn't respond like our parents respond with, you don't get to talk to me like that, I'm God. He doesn't say, I'm the boss, you're the baby. He says, he welcomes it. He welcomes our honesty and our doubt and our questions, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a couple weeks. Also notice how tender and compassionate the Lord is at the wall with Elijah. Here, have something to eat. Here, why don't you take a nap? Here, why don't you have something more to eat or this journey is going to be too much for you? See, what we often think is that God expects us to be good little troopers who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and soldier on, but he instead comes to us graciously and tenderly to lead us through the wall, which is something we'll have a better grip on in a couple of minutes. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, so he got up and he ate and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. Now, I don't want you to miss a couple of things. When you're reading Old Testament narrative, which is my favorite genre of scripture to read, it is easy to kind of read over it and miss what the narrator is doing. Because, uh, And we're going to look at this because we're going to preach through the book of First and Second Samuel starting Mother's Day for probably like two years it's going to take us off and on. I'm not, I'm not kidding either. It's going to take about two years, and we're just going to do it off and on. We Netflix binge, so you're going to be able to walk away and say, I really know First and Second Samuel. And uh, some of you are nervous laughing now, right? Um, you were not here when we did, like, John for 30 weeks and, like, Exodus for 25. I mean, we've just not, we've not done a whole book in a while. But what's interesting about Old Testament narrative is they're very circumspect, so they don't tell you. They're telling you what to think without telling you what to think. They're trying to get you to notice things without, like, telling you. So notice in these verses a couple of things. First, 40 days and 40 nights. The number 40 is significant to the Old Testament imagination. Um, it, Noah and the animals, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, 40 years is how long the Israelites wander in the desert before entering the promised land. Jesus, later on in the New Testament, goes into the desert again for 40 days and 40 nights. So when you see 40 days and 40 nights, that clues you into God is working behind the scenes to do something here. He's conspiring. And then it says that he goes of all places to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. This is a very specific place in Israel's history. They, in the book of Exodus, they're delivered from slavery. They go into the wilderness after crossing through the Red Sea, and they camp out at Mount Sinai. And that is where Moses climbs up the mountain and God reveals his law and makes covenant with them. This is the place that God and Israel have what we call a DTR. They define their relationship there. When God takes Elijah for 40 days and 40 nights through the desert into, into, the Mount, into Mount Sinai, which I have a picture of that, Dan. Uh, it's a real place. It is as if God is inviting Elijah back to basics. Let's go back to the beginning and start from here. So Elijah gets to Mount Sinai after running 40 days and 40 nights. And he goes and takes a nap in a cave. And then look what happens. The back half of verse 9. 
he wakes up in the cave and it says, the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is another Old Testament device. You see this a lot. Does the Lord not know where Elijah is? Of course not. He knows why Elijah's there. He wants Elijah to know. This is his way of checking in with Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah, is the Lord's way of saying, how are you doing now? You've had a snack. You've had a nap. You've had another snack. How are you doing now, buddy? And Elijah replies like this in verse 10. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now, if you've never been at the wall before, you think Elijah's just being a touch dramatic. If you've been at the wall, if you've been in the dark night of the soul, you're like, that sounds about right. I I saw that, and I was like, yeah, I feel like Elijah's pulling his punches, actually. Um, all this text is pointing in one direction. Do you feel the suspense in this text where God is saying, where we're trying to find out how is God going to prove himself to be God now? There's some tension. It's good. It's good. Look at what God does in verses 11 through 15. Go out, the Lord says, and stand before me on the mountain. This is an echo of also something that happens in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, the most repeated, the most repeated events in the Bible over and over again. Side note. Um, Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied again in verse 14. If it's being repeated, it's because it's with a different tone than the first time. I will bet you all of the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that he sounded different the second time. In fact, he probably sounded like, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. It's as if he's saying, I'm the only one left, so I must have to go. And the Lord says, go back the way you came. And Elijah goes back, and everything is perfect and fun, and he's never sad again. Wrong. It actually gets harder, but he goes back. Do you see the tenderness and compassion of the Lord here? As a father has compassion on his children, so is the Lord's love for those who love him. That's what the psalmist says. And as God meets Elijah at the wall, his tenderness reaches its height as the Lord speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice. He does not speak with trumpets or flash or fireworks. He works powerful miracles, but that is not how he speaks to Elijah. Instead, he speaks softly and tenderly to Elijah in a quiet, quiet Whisper, And when you and I are at the wall, when we are in the midst of the dark night of the soul, when the doors of heaven seem shut, and when suffering is so great, it leaves us with these 
big questions. I think our, ten, our, our temptation is for more. I need more information. I need more praise music. I need to turn up the sounds on the radio louder. And if I sing this song loud enough and if I get enough scripture in me, it'll chase away my feelings of darkness and despair. And that's, we don't need more. We find in 1 Kings 19, we need less. We need less. Because it turns out that less is more. Less is more than enough. The only way out is the way through. And what gets us through is the still, small voice of God. Now, here's the problem. We live in a remarkably noisy world. Even when life is good, when we are not at the wall, when everything is bright and shiny and happy and fun, God's voice is drowned out by our schedules and our smartphones and our TVs and our car radios. We run from silence in our culture. We run from silence faster than Elijah runs from Jezebel. Ruth Haley Barton says, we are starved for quiet to hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. We are starved for quiet to hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. But then we hit the wall. Then we enter the dark night of the soul when what we really need is to enter the silence to make space to hear from God. Our distractions multiply tenfold, and the noise of our confusion and disappointment and discouragement alone is enough to drown out God's voice. Y'all know that we've had, and if you don't, we've had a number of experiences with infertility and miscarriage, and for us, this is the clearest example of hitting the wall. And my deepest and most profound question was, this was the moment when my faith stopped working. This was the moment when I said to Aaron, we had barely met each other. I'm surprised he still talks to me. I was like, I just don't think God is as good as he says he is. God's goodness must be quantifiably less and qualitatively different than what I have been promised. If this is the norm. If this is the norm. My faith stopped working. My experience outweighed the categories that I had. We all hit the wall. We hit it when, our, when we hear of divorce, when we lose a job a loved one dies, we hit the wall when what has connected us to God previously is taken away. This also happened to me when I left Moody and went to grad school. I remember I was like up reading the Bible like I did most mornings at Moody and like trying to journal and stuff like that. And I, it was just boring and, and dull and dry. I hit the wall. There was, it was time for something more. If you're going to hit the wall, y'all, you're going to hit it. You're going to enter the dark night of the soul. And when that happens, you can interpret that as a lack in yourself and as a sign of failure. And by the way, sometimes some sin in our life does disrupt the connection that we have between us and the Lord. But sometimes what we're in is the dark night of the soul. And sometimes instead of collapsing in on ourselves and feeling shame and all this guilt, maybe what we need to do instead is hear the gentle invitation of Jesus to new depths. Jesus says to them while they're fishing one day, go out into the deeper water. So you're going to hit the wall, and when you do, not if. By the way, some of you are stuck at a wall, and you've been stuck for too long. So I'm just going to, we're going to pray about that later, but. When you hit the wall, when you enter the dark night of the soul, I want you to turn off the radio, 
turn off the TV, put down the book, turn off the podcast, turn off your phone, turn off the Spotify worship playlist, and enter the silence. Go on a long walk by yourself. Go on a long run. Get in the car, leave your phone at home, keep the radio off, and drive. If you have children, I now, by the way, have so much understanding of how hard this is. Wait until they go to sleep. Enter the silence. And know that in that silence, which is the sound of God's very presence, he is whispering to you, what are you doing here? And not in a get off my lawn kind of what are you doing here. But I'm really glad you're here. When you sit in silence, you will feel anxious. You will feel distracted. You will feel stupid for sitting silently. You will remember the 19 things on your to-do list, the 19 things you've been meaning to buy at the store. You will feel an overwhelming desire to clean the floors, to reorganize the pantry. But you need to remember that this is the Lord's invitation. Charles Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon is one of the most famous preachers of the 19th century. Uh, Spurgeon would preach on Sunday, and his sermons were printed in the newspaper on Monday, right? Uh, And you can read all his sermons online. And uh, Spurgeon, his entire life, battled depression and anxiety. His entire life. His entire, I mean, aren't spiritual Christians not supposed to experience these things? Isn't the Holy Spirit supposed to fix this? Spurgeon wrestled with, like, profound mental illness his entire ministry. And in a sermon called The Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness, he says this. Now, there are many who have rejoiced in the presence of God for a season. They have basked in the sunshine. God has been pleased to give them in the earlier stages of their Christian career. They have walked along the green pastures by the side of the still waters, and suddenly they find that glorious sky is clouded. Instead of green pastures, they have to tread the sandy desert. In the place of still waters, they find streams brackish to their taste and bitter to their spirits. And they say, surely if I were a child of God, this would not happen. He says, oh, say not so, thou who art walking in darkness. The best of God's saints have had their nights. The dearest of his children have to walk through a weary wilderness. Oh, say not so, thou who art walking in darkness. You will hit the wall. You will enter the dark night. When you do, enter the silence. And hear the gentle voice of the Lord speaking behind you, saying, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. Let's pray together. We're going to actually do this in a couple ways. I'm going to pray, uh, and Julia is going to come up and just kind of introduce a new song. I, would, I was tempted for a response time to be 10 minutes of silence. And then I was like, wow, that'll freak them out. So here's what we're going to do instead. Julia is going to play a song that uh, we sang a lot when I was at Moody. It's called Hear Master in This Quiet Place. So um, I want to encourage you to use this time to journal, 
encourage you to use this time to just sit and be with God. Um, and um, then we'll do communion. And as we're doing communion, if you would like someone to pray with you, um, they don't know this is about to happen, but like Aaron and Joey um, can do that. And Randy could do that. Is that all right? I'm dragooning you too. Um, so we'll, you know, if you're not good at sitting in silence, like just listen to the words of the song, let that be a prayer, spend time with the Lord. We'll do communion together. And then after that, we can pray and then go home. But let me pray for you right now. Lord God, we, some of us this morning, um, we just need you because we're at the wall. Um, I think there's a couple people. I think there's people, there's like kind of three groups that you keep bringing to mind. And one is the, the group that's at the wall. One is the group that's at the wall. I pray, Lord, that you would burst through the distractions with a still, small voice. Lord, for those of us that are not at the wall yet or haven't been at the wall in a while, I pray that this would be one of those kind of hiding your truth in our hearts so that we can walk faithfully later sermons. Stick this in a Ziploc bag in the freezer of our brains so that we can pull it out when we need it. And Lord, some of us have been at a wall and we're just like sitting there and have been sitting there for way too long and your heart is to move us through. And it's not that we don't believe anymore, it's that we feel discouraged or rejected or disappointed or stuck and you want us to move beyond that. And so Lord Jesus, would you come and move us and deliver us from this wall that we've just been sitting at for way too long. want to, we're just here, just here, so church, hear, hear the voice of your master saying, what are you doing here, while Julia sings. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings as we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need us most. At this table, we put into practice our faith that grace is not an idea or like a, a nebulous thing, but it is something we see and taste and touch and feel. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus who broke his body for us. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus who pours himself out for us. At this table, you are welcome if you have a pulse. If you have a pulse, Jesus invites you to his table because it's not Regen's table, it's no church's table, it's his. It's at this table that he disbelieves our unbelief. It's at this table that we're made whole. And so um, I'm actually gonna be one of the people praying with people. So I need, I need four communion people. One. Yeah, one, great. Dan, Jairus, fabulous. Why don't you guys do bread and then the other guys do cup. Um, I'll be over here. You guys will find your way somewhere back there, right? And then, or wherever, and we'll, we'll pray for folk or whatever. So, 
Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be made whole, that we might feast upon your grace and our weakness. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. The table is open. By the way, this, this is Jack. So he's asleep. Um, we're going to look at this text next week. Hi, Addy. We're going to look at this text next week. But there's this New Testament passage where somebody comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's where we're at together in this place. So may you enter the silence and hear the still voice of Jesus. I love you. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.